Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. How's it going, Des? Good. I have a piece of popcorn stuck in my throat. I'm very professional. We um, put a big bowl of caramel corn <laughs> on an improvised side table. Which is just a, we have a seat. We have a seat at this table right now for our caramel corn. The seat of Elijah. <laughs> it's for Elijah. Elijah okay. liked caramel corn. Little known fact. Um, I also <clears throat> want to thank our... We didn't thank our Tony last week. I don't think. He just became a Patreon contributor. Right, check out our Patreon for um, hilarious bonus episodes. We have a say so ourselves, and there's like a huge backlog now. Right, so for five dollars, you're gonna get a ton of stuff. A ton of stuff, and most of it's very dirty and inappropriate. Um, And tonight, uh, our Patreon episode that we're recording is extra spooky and Halloween themed, so you're definitely gonna want to check that one out. That's Patreon.com/slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Um, speaking of Halloween. Kind of what inspired tonight's episode is I was sort of looking around to see if any kind of crazy crime happened around Halloween time because mm-hmm. I figured there had to be something. Right. Uh, and there actually was something. And I, it's, it's a crime that I actually followed for a very long time. <clears throat> so this week, it's actually going to be a two-part episode. So tonight is part one because there's a lot of information here. Um so we're coming up on the 42-year anniversary. Is that correct? Hold on a second. Let me do my math. Desi's the scientist on this show, not the mathematician. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> um, the, it's, it's the really long anniversary. <laughs> Can we start over? No. Okay. Um, the murder of Martha Moxley, which is not a laughing matter. Um, I first learned about this murder from my longtime old man crush, Dominic Dunn, <clears throat> who I have loved since I was a child. Who you may remember as the father of one of the subjects in episode three, the poltergeist curse. Right. Um, and he's also um, a pretty big true crime writer, mm-hmm. or was, he's dead now, but uh, <clears throat> of natural causes. Anyways, he wrote a book called A Season in Purgatory which I read, and I also saw the miniseries that was based on the novel. Uh, and then I, at some point I found out that that book was based on a true uh, crime. So once I realized it was based on a real crime, I really sort of started looking into that. And I started following um, his writing on the case in Vanity Fair, which he had like a, I think it was a pretty regular column yeah. for Vanity Fair <clears throat> that was sort of like crime and, and rich, sort of of the rich and famous um, so it was actually Dominic Dunn's writing on the case in Vanity Fair that kind of brought the case at, at that point, which I think it started in the early nineties was when the book was written, uh, had been a cold case, um, for almost 20 years at that point. So, uh, anyways, let's get into it. I'm going to start it off. Do you remember the old show city confidential? 
No. Okay. It was an old A&E show that was about crime and every week was um, a different city. And it was um, narrated by this actor, Paul Winfield, who had this like really deep voice. <laughs> he was like narrative. And it was always like a crime. It was always sort of like, it was a, it was a, <laughs> it was a slow and easy kind of town. Like every, every episode started off with like a little bio of the right, town. Right. And I would always be very invested. It's like, ooh, Tupelo, Mississippi. <laughs> like, and it was just like, you'd have like images, like B-roll of people riding bikes on the street. And right. Da, 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 da. And it was like, like it always got you really in and then it would be a crime that happened in this slow and sleepy cool. town so co- city confidential style <clears throat> let's go back to 1975 greenwich connecticut which is a very exclusive community really really like when you think of waspy if you think of like waspy new england rich wealthy types this is like where this they is all ground live zero. <clears throat> this is ground zero of rich bitches Big mansions, you know, fucking grounds with landscaping and <clears throat> what are those things called? Ralph Topiary. <laughs> yeah. It's Ralph Lauren, yachts, country clubs, the whole works. So uh, uh, on the evening of October 30th, 1975, a young girl who I believe was 15 years old at the time named Martha Moxley was out with her friends attending something called Mischief Night, which was sort of the night before Halloween. Halloween Eve. Yeah. Halloween Eve. Uh, basically doing things like, I don't know if you did this stuff as, as a kid when you were uh, celebrating Halloween, like shaving cream fights and toilet paper. Yeah, it seems like Like that kind of stuff where you're not like um, trick-or-treating anymore, but you're out creating... You're egging houses. Egging houses, you know, I'm sure. And like whatever the rich kid version of that is, throwing Hurling. Fabergé eggs houses. I have no idea. Right. So anyways, toilet papering, just fucking, fucking around. And rich kids are, we all know that they're even they worse suck. than us, like... But Martha was probably very nice. Uh, um, so according to people who were around that night, Moxley began flirting and uh, fooling around to varying degrees, according to different sources, um, with a guy named Thomas Skakel, who was 17. Uh, Moxley was last seen, and it, it was described as falling together behind a fence with Thomas Skakel near the pool in his backyard at around 9.30 p.m., one thing you, you have to understand about this location, and I looked at like a map of it because I was sort of unclear when I was reading all the information. All of these houses are huge. Right. And they're all sort of like connected to each other. Like if you have an overhead view, they're all next to each other, but mansion next to each other. Right. So they're kind of far apart, but they're all sort of connected in a way. Like there's no like fences and drive like you know I don't know yeah yeah you know the neighbors they're they're you're sort of all on top of each other but still very far apart because these are huge mansions. Um, so uh, Martha was supposed to be home by 10 p.m. that night, and when she didn't get home by 12, her mom Dorothy and friends and family began searching for her. Uh, the next day, Halloween. Ooh. Um, Moxie's body was actually found underneath a tree in her family's backyard. That's how big wow. these areas are because she was actually in the yard when people were searching for her the night before. So she was actually find, found by a classmate, another 15-year-old classmate, um, under this pine tree in her own backyard. Uh, her body appeared to have been dragged 60 or 80 feet. Uh, I guess they had some kind of markings that showed that. Um, the only other thing at the crime scene was a number six, Tony Penna. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, golf club, which later was proven to have been taken from a set from the Skakel's home 
which is, you know, as I said, sort of next door, Nearby. but sort of far. Um, Martha had been struck so hard that the shaft of the um, golf club was broken into four pieces. Oh, my God. Only three of the pieces were at the scene, actually. <clears throat> the grip part, which is probably where the fingerprints were, was nowhere to be found. The killer, at some point, after he broke the golf club on her, took one of the jagged pieces and stabbed her through the neck. So obviously in a town like Greenwich, Connecticut, <laughs> this shocking. is not something that happens all the time. So this murder was pretty shocking and it's pretty, it's a pretty gruesome murder. I mean, she was, she was beat like pretty Hard. badly. And, and she it was, was probably still alive when she was stabbed through the neck. Right. And it was bloody, a bloody scene. Right. So there, you know, obviously as we know about these kind of towns, there's also like a lot of gossiping and mm -hmm. da, da da da. So there was sort of like the initial gossiping, like oh, some awful hitchhiker or transient some must have yeah came in town. and stole a golf club from someone's house and beat the shit out of this poor girl. Okay, but this also being that type of gossipy um, environment, a lot of people the 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 exact neighborhood in, in Greenwich is called Bellhaven. That's how it's like even more exclusive than Greenwich. Right. Um, they thought that uh, it was pretty likely that it, it could have also been one of the brothers who lived in the residence of Rushton Skakel, who was a widower with six sons and a daughter. Uh, and he basically was raising these kids. Um, his wife had died a few years earlier. So he's alone, a very wealthy man in this home with uh, seven children and a staff, basically. Now, Skakel, Rushton Skakel, is the brother of Ethel Skakel, who was the widow of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. So that's his connection to the Kennedy family. <clears throat> his sister married a Kennedy, basically. But the Skakels were also very, very wealthy. Um, they, at some point, had owned one of the largest privately held companies in the world that I think was like a carbon company. Um, some people say the Skakels were even richer than the Kennedys and the sort of patriarchs of the family, George Skakel and Joe Kennedy had sort of a, a rivalry. Um, Skakel referred to Joe Kennedy as low life Irish trash, which I love. Damn. I love rich people fights. They, they just didn't have a good relationship, but uh, they were also another thing they had in common was that the Skakels also had a lot of tragedy. Ethel and Russian's parent, parents were both killed in a private plane crash their brother george was also killed in a plane crash and george's wife at some point choked to death on a piece of meat at a dinner party which is like the mama cast of like rich people totally. deaths, right um and then as i said before rushton's wife Anne, who was the mother of his seven children died like a really horrible uh death of can from cancer in 1973 and leaving him alone with seven children. Mm. It was actually one of Anne Skakel's golf clubs that was the weapon that was used to kill Martha Moxley. So they still had a set of her old golf clubs. Okay. So the guy I mentioned before, the boy that Martha was hanging out with, Thomas Skakel, since he was the last person known to have been seen with her the night of the murder, and he basically had zero alibi, became the prime suspect. He took several inconclusive polygraphs, and then his father kind of went back and forth, um, initially agreeing to release some of his school and mental health records, 
but then reneging on that and refusing to the, to release them. At the time, there was also uh, another suspect, Kenneth Littleton, who was a live-in tutor for the Skakel family, who had only just started, like, I believe it might have even been that day of Martha's murder. Wow. Uh, he also became a suspect. And I think he also took some polygraphs that were sort of all over the map as far as results went. And then eventually, though, no one was charged. And um, as I said before, the case kind of went cold. A lot of people speculated that it was Rushton Skakel's money that kind of squashed uh, anything from happening in that in that case. Um, there was other theory that like Rushton was sort of like in Greenwich, like a major force in Greenwich, whereas the Moxleys had only moved there the previous year. So there was kind of some of this like uh, hierarchy. Cult hierarchy, but sort of more like, you, you know, like um, loyalty, like to the people. Right. You know what I mean? It was like the right. outsiders, like we're going to all circle in and protect our own yeah. kind of deal. In 1991, so this is now 16 years later. So I don't know if you remember this at all. You were probably a little young, but you might have heard of it afterwards. William Kennedy Smith um, another Kennedy family member was tried for rape in 1991 in Palm Beach. Mm -hmm. That's that incident actually happened on Good Friday and Mar on March 29th, 1991. And Kennedy was 30 years old. He was in a um, Palm Beach bar that was actually called O Bar, A U O -bar. O Bar, o -bar. <laughs> Ooh la la. And he was out partying with Ted Kennedy and his cousin Patrick Kennedy when they met a woman named Patricia Bowman. At the bar, uh -uh, I guess they went back to a Kennedy family compound. And then at some point, Patricia and Smith went onto the beach and took a walk. And that's where she alleged that Smith uh, raped her. Of course, according to Smith, it was consensual, right? Of course. Obviously, being a Kennedy, he was acquitted of all charges of raping the woman. And then there was a civil action at some point that I think he settled. And then he actually settled another case of a sexual harassment a few years after that, or in 2005, actually. So it's like, I mean, once again, people are just kind of serial sexual harassers, of abusers. Course. Anyways, the point of bringing that up, um, anyways, he uh, he was also, he's the related to the Kennedys because he is the son of Jean Kennedy Smith, who is the youngest daughter of Joseph Kennedy. Uh, and so... There are so many Kennedys. Like, there's a lot of Kennedys. That's why I'm always trying to clarify where they're connected. Right, and I, and I always get their names and their ages and sort of right. where they fit in mixed up. Well, especially when they have a different last name because of marriage. Like Maria Shriver. Right, right, right. I, I, yeah. I, I need a family tree. That's what I need to see. A well, Maria tree. Shriver would be equivalent to William Kennedy Smith. Okay. Because they're both the son children of a Kennedy daughter. So they have a different last name, but their uncle is John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. Right. Whereas the Skakels are purely marriage. Like their sis, their sister married a Kennedy. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Oof. Oof, um, a lot. So during that trial, um, there's a reason I'm bringing it up. A rumor started circulating that Smith was actually present the night of Moxley's murder. Wow. Okay. At this time, writer Dominic Dunn was covering the William Kennedy Smith trial. And that might be where I read it. I don't, I don't remember. I mean, I do remember it happening. So obviously, he heard this rumor kind of going around. He was covering the trial. The rumor turned out to be bogus. He had not been in the Skakel house that night. But it, it kind of aroused um, 
Don's curiosity in the case once more. Once more, he had known about it a long time ago because he's actually from Connecticut. Yeah, he's from that area. So he started kind of poking around. He asked people what happened to the case, uh, and everywhere he went, everyone was saying nothing. Nothing happened. Um, and so this is 16 years after, and he was sort of baffled. Like, how does this case just? die out like it was a big case and it kind of involves the kennedy family and it's so crazy too yeah i mean it's a young girl like who's against (laughs) finding out the killer of a young girl he kind of started inquiring about the moxley's Mm -hmm. and as we said like you mentioned before he is the father of a murdered daughter so he has like an extra sort of interest in like yeah he would obviously think like well what about the family like where is the family so he found out the father had died the the mother and and father after her murder actually just kind of started spending more and more time in new york yeah they couldn't be there anymore because like i said before everything's really close and they're in this insulated community they probably didn't with feel people like they, they had a lot of support like, yeah murdered their daughter and no one was helping them so they kind of moved to new york and then after the father died the mother dorothy moxley moved to annapolis maryland uh so as i said before dominic felt kind of drawn to her and he actually wrote her asking if he could talk to her about her daughter's murder. Wow. She agreed to meet him and they met for coffee in a, in a Baltimore, Washington airport. Uh, some of the things he asked her was why she had moved from Greenwich since her leaving actually made it easier for the case to kind of die down. She wasn't right. there. I mean, it's a, a lot of the burden is on the families in these cases to really keep to the memory alive because cops are just going to move on to the next thing. And if no one's fucking up their ass about it, right. they'll just drop it, especially if they're getting pressure from like the richest family. Rich family. Yeah. So she, she reportedly said that she just couldn't bear anymore to look out her window and see the Skakel house right there. And she called it the house of secrets. She said she was unsure who killed her daughter, but that she's pretty certain that someone in that house knew it, knew who did it, or someone from that house did it themselves. I mean, come on. It was one of their golf clubs. Right. I mean, there's always a slim margin. There's like someone robbing houses and took whatever. Like, right. It is a possibility. It's but, a possibility, but she yeah. was all, but I mean, yeah. if you're, if I'm the parent in that situation and I know my daughter had been out with the Skagel boy right. and one of the golf clubs was used I feel like there has to be some kind of connection there. Another interesting thing she brought up was that the day after the murder, she saw limousines with out-of-state license plates all parked up and down the Skakel driveway. Really? Which is like suspicious, right? Yeah. I mentioned already she moved to New York and then to um, Annapolis. At some point during this meeting, Dunn mentioned that he was um, a writer. He had written three books previous to this, I think. And he... uh, approached her with the idea of writing a fictionalized account of the murders. He told her that he had the hopes that if he wrote something, it might pique the interest in the case again and that uh, it could lead to more information about maybe what happened that night. Cause like it's been so, yeah, it had been so long that maybe people would start coming out of the woodwork and we'd start getting some more evidence. Cause at this point there's really no evidence or testimony. No. They interviewed over 500 people Uh, During the initial investigation and nothing was said or turned up. And at the time, they didn't have DNA testing either. Uh, Here's like another crazy fact that I didn't know. Uh, You mentioned Dominique Don. Here was like the sort of final (laughs) cell he gave her. He told her about his daughter. They had actually been born a year apart and were viciously attacked by a man she knew 
on October 30th. Dominique was also attacked on October 30th. Right. right. So both of these women were attacked by maybe people. I mean, Dominique, yes, but we're but, not sure with Martha yet. By someone they knew on October 30th, which I thought was fucking insane. That is like, weird. By a uh, romantic In different partner. years, but like still pretty crazy coincidence. At that point, they kind of bonded. She agreed to support the book. I don't think she even had to agree to it, but he wanted to have her support. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually became very close friends. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. So in 1993, uh, Dunn published the book I mentioned earlier, Season in Purgatory, which was a fictional version, pretty close to what happened in the Martha Moxley case. Um, in the novel, did you ever read this book? I didn't, or, no? but I okay. kind of want to now. It's, uh, it's good. So the novel has like, the protagonist of the no- novel is named Harrison Burns. And he kind of is someone who receives, kind of taken under the wing of the person who would be va- based on Skakel, the rich patriarch of a large uh, wealthy family. And he's sort of a lower class person who's taken into this family. So he feels a little indebted to them. Uh, a very similar murder happens. Um, a teenager named Winifred Utley is bludgeoned to death with a baseball bat in the book. Um, 
and her murder was unsolved, but he believes that it's actually the son of one of his sort of his guardian or whatever. Uh, so he, he kind of, and the, the son at this point in the book, he's being groomed to be president of the United States. So it's like this sort of dilemma where he's like, do I take down the family who gave me my education and everything right. I have to do the right thing? Sort of, that's sort of the gist of it. A mini, I think I said a mini series was also uh, made of the movie shortly after. And Patrick Dempsey plays the Harrison Burns character, the protagonist. And Brian Dennehy is the um, patriarch. Sherilyn Fenn is also in it. And of course, Edwin Herman is in it. And he has to be in every movie that's set in the upper crusty rich world <laughs> of New England. It's, it's the Hollywood it's law. It's the law. It's the law. So I mentioned before, like he did change some things to avoid um, being sued for libel. Uh, in the book, the, the golf club became a baseball bat. And then he changed the kind of makeup of the family. Um, and the names and stuff. Yeah, obviously. all that stuff, obviously. Uh, so that came out in 1993. It was like a huge bestseller. And it was immediately picked up. The story got picked up again. Like, even though he changed things, everyone knew, they knew. what he was talking right. about. So the CBS Evening News did a long segment on the book. And it just kind of boomed the case up again. Like, it just was getting a lot of attention. Uh, and Dominic was on the TV uh, talking a ton about the murder also. I mean, he was really invested in getting this case back on track. Yeah. Okay. So as much as, as much attention as things, uh, as things were getting or the case was getting still people weren't coming forward yet. It wasn't like all of a sudden, like the dams broke and mm-hmm. da, 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 da. so during the book tour, I think it might've been in Denver, a woman approached Dunn and she was a forensic psychologist who had worked on the initial investigation with the Greenwich police. She told him that at some point she was let go with no explanation. And she, uh, asked to meet Dunn privately after the book signing. He agreed. Of course, when they met, she handed over to him, Martha's autopsy, autopsy photos, which no one other than the police had seen at that point. Like they had never been published and it's not the internet days. Right. Right. And here's what Dunn had to say about the autopsy photos. One of the blows had, this is a direct quote, one of the blows had taken off a portion of the right side of Martha's scalp, which was hanging by a piece of skin down over her face. You could see the wound where a short pointed piece of shaft had been stabbed into the side of her neck. In one full shot, you could see that her jeans had been pulled down. He said that when he saw the photos, he felt faint afterwards. And he had said to the woman that the person who did this had to have been drunk or stoned to, to brutalize somebody that way. He actually stopped stopped her from showing him more. Uh, and of course, she asked not to be revealed and all of this stuff. And then as, as she was leaving the um, meeting, she whispered to him, or she said to him as she left, it wasn't Tommy. And she repeated that, it wasn't Tommy. And Tommy was the boy. Tommy was the boy, the 17-year-old right. boy. And that's all she said. And according to Don the words haunted him because he had been on TV up to that point, basically saying that Tommy had done this and uh, wow. really saying that it was him and, and yeah. pointing to evidence that really proved that it, there was a cover up and something was happened. Uh, and it wasn't that, that big of a stretch because that was pretty much what everyone was saying at that point. After that, he um, went back to Connecticut and he actually was visited by the uh, police 
the the uh, Greenwich police team that was involved in the yeah. Moxie case. Yeah, because he's out there every and and pretty much bad mouthing this whole family. Mm-hmm. Well, not only the family, but the police department. Like, like there's and their work, the shoddy work. Yeah, yeah. one of the major uh, case, or maybe like the the lead detective was named Frank Gar. He actually came to the house also. This is something I thought was really weird. They bought him kind of all this uh, Connecticut Division of Criminal Justice swag. Wait. Like they got him like um, a coffee mug and a t-shirt. Like they brought all of this kind of they stuff. They brought to that the, to Dunn? Yeah, to Dunn when they met up with him. Like here's, here's, some, like here's a basket of like, it's like the Oscars or something. Like, like a swag bag. Yeah, here you go. Like here's a bobblehead. And, like what the hell? Here's a poster and a calendar. Right. So, um, and they basically asked him to stop criticizing the police and the police work on the case. And he kind of agreed to do that. Um, they said it wasn't helping their ongoing investigation and all this kind of stuff. And then he mentioned to them that he saw the autopsy photos. I don't know how that happened, probably because he's a loudmouth, like gossipy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and they were like completely shocked by this news. And they said that she stole those pictures. Um, basically accusing her of stealing them, which is probably true, right? I mean, why would she have them? Mm -hmm. So he still feels like there's some kind of mystery going on behind her story, but he kind of left it at that. So I mentioned before that uh, the miniseries was made, and that actually came out in May 1996. It was actually an Aaron Spelling production. I mean, so it is kind of a juicy kind of soap opera-y deal. And that also kind of gave the case another big buzz, right? Of course. Newspaper stories, more TV appearances. People were just discussing the case regularly. It was like the open secret that this was about the um, Skakel and the Moxley murder. Okay, so seven months after the miniseries aired, Dunn gets a call, or someone calls for Dunn at the offices of Vanity Fair magazine looking to speak to them. I mean, obviously, they probably get a ton of calls like that with tips yeah. and da da da. For some reason, the woman who answered the phones there that day was like, this is legit. Yeah. She put him in contact with Don. She, she called Don and she said, I think this is about the Moxley case. And I think that you have to talk to this guy. So, uh, Don agreed. I don't I feel like he'll just go to any meeting, right? Of course. <laughs> so he shows up at this restaurant. I mean, it's like a fancy New York restaurant at the time, you know, Don is like pretty up in the upper echelon like you always kind of forget that he's really hoity-toity himself yeah even though he's kind of from a blue collar-ish background so he shows up and a 24 year old guy is there who looks even younger according to don uh he had just got out of university and he was a writer um but he had taken a job uh working at this firm and so here's the story that he told don at this restaurant that day in 1991, so this is before season of Purgatory, like around the time of mm-hmm. the um, William Kennedy Smith trial, Rushton Skakel, at that point, he was kind of wanted to take, he wanted to sort of exonerate his sons. He hired a private investigation firm called Sutton Associates to do a sort of secret investigation of the Martha Moxley murder. So wow. not not connected to any legal it was a like his own thing, a private thing where they would do their own investigation and only he would know the results. Yeah. Everyone involved in that, that organization or the detectives doing the secret investigation all signed confidentiality agreements. Mm-hmm. So these are all like former detectives and police officers. So these are people who know what they're doing. They're just not like no longer officially law enforcement. Mm-hmm. 
he gave them complete access to all seven of his children and all of the records that he kept from the police were completely available to them. So he basically gave wow. them everything he never gave to the police, right? Wow. So they have like full, you know, A carte blanche. Thing. Yeah. So during their investigation, Michael Skakel, who had never been a suspect, he's he's the younger son of Rushton. So Thomas at the time was 17. Michael is his younger brother who was 15 at the time of Martha's murder. He had never been a suspect because he had had an alibi that he was at a cousin's house watching a Monty Python movie. But his story started changing during this uh, private investigation. He told detectives that he had actually climbed a tree the night of the murder outside of Martha's bedroom window and jerked off in oh. the tree. Oh. <laughs> oh, I know it's not insane. What the fuck? Right. Uh, Just, I got to climb So he's completely changed off. his story. He's like, now he's at the scene of the crime. And not only is he at the scene of the crime, he's leaving DNA. Like, when did he, wait, did he tell this at the time? When did he tell the jerking this is off in story? Nineteen ninety one. In nineteen ninety one, he told the private investigator. Private investigator. He never told the police that. He told, he told the police he was at Mo- Monty Python. He was watching Monty Python at right. his cousin's house. So this oh is a completely God. new revelation. So he willingly allowed, like, was okay to the private investigator. I guess. I mean, why not lie forever? <laughs> you know, my theory. Like, right. why? If you're going to be evil, like, why ever give in? Um, so, but maybe it was like a father scared thing, or maybe the father's like, "Fucking tell him what happened. You're still right. innocent." I mean, who knows? Um. So apparently, like, this private investigation cost over $750,000. Like, oh it was my a serious, God. yeah. And it was possibly much higher than that, which I kind of believe because, right? I mean, yeah. Um, so at some point, it came time to give the results to Skakel. The agency had to put it all into a cohesive report. Um, and that was what they hired this young guy who was meeting. Um, Dominic Dunn to do. Yeah. He was in charge of kind of putting everything into a document that Rushton Skakel could read. And it was like a narrative storyline that oh. wasn't just a bunch of investigation and interviews and da da da. He kind of put like, he the was a writer. four year old was yeah. in charge of this. Um, right. By Ooh, the way. Wait a minute. The 20, he was 24 when, uh, when Dominic Dunn met him in 1996, you're saying? Oh, right. So he was even younger. He was really young. Yeah, he was really young. But the, here's the thing. Because he kind of came on after the investigation started, he never signed the confidentiality agreements oh, wow. that those detectives all had signed. Okay. So uh, the report basically said, and this is what was presented to Rushton, that Tommy had not killed Martha Moxley. That Michael, the fourth Skakel son, who had never been a a suspect had in all probability killed Martha Moxley. The report said that Tommy may have helped his brother after the fact, drag the body. Remember I told you had been dragged that he might've helped after the fact in the murder. Uh, they also theorized that, that Michael and Tommy were, you know, hated each other. Like we're fighting a lot and like kind of whatever, like, I don't know how much more than normal siblings it was. Uh, um, Rushton, they had was an alcoholic, uh, and he apparently flipped the fuck out <laughs> at the results of that report. Yeah, I mean, basically, he was paying a million dollars or whatever to get them innocent. He wasn't. He didn't want to hear that they. There's did a it. whole other fucking thing I didn't fucking know about. Like right. Um, so he paid the agency, and the report was supposedly never to be seen again. Right. Uh, the other theory was that. 
Michael had a crush on Martha, and when he saw Tommy kissing her, I told you that they had been they seen kind of kissing and fooling yeah. around. He got pissed and, and killed decided her. that he was going to have her or, or whatever. I mean, or no classic. one's going to have yeah, her. Yeah, no one's going to have her. Who the fuck knows? So, and then, you know, after the murder, like after they find this, if you look back at Michael, he he had been a troubled kid since his mom's death um, from brain cancer in 1973. Shortly after her mur- her death, he actually began abusing alcohol. Like as a child, yeah, he was not a good student. He flunked out of over a dozen schools. He had dyslexia. I, he just had like he had problems. a ton of problems. His cousin Robert F. Kennedy Jr. After all of this, uh, said that he was a small, sensitive child, the runt of the litter, with a harsh and occasionally violent alcoholic father who both ignored and abused him. So they're from a fucked up family, but right, what, who isn't? Um, I know some of you are okay. Um, (laughs) and then according to neighbors, like it was like the classic rich kid thing. Like they were given an unlimited amount of money and freedom and had zero supervision or consequences for any of their actions. Um, and then Michael continued to have problems throughout his life. In 1978, he was arrested for drunk driving. He was sent to, um, Elon school in Poland, Maine, which will come up in next week's episode more, and it was there that he started receiving treatment for alcohol- alcoholism. <clears throat> so I guess it's some kind of boarding school slash rehab. Yeah. Is that a thing? They have those. For rich people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ran away from that twice, too, and then left after two years. So, I mean, he just had a pretty fucked up life. <clears throat> um, according to Don, like, he, the reason he thinks this guy came to him was that he got really invo- emotionally invested in the story. And then he thought it was pretty fucked up that justice was never going to happen because rich people were going to cover this up. Um, I told you about not signing the confidentiality agreement. So when he saw Don on TV, he's like, here's my opportunity to maybe make something happen in the story. Uh, uh, When they left, when he left the meeting, he actually left Don with the complete Sutton report oh my God. in his fucking hands. So can you even imagine how excited oh Tom my God. Don I was is, just right? thinking, I'm like, he's probably coming his pants right now. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Uh, so obviously this kid's freaking out though. Like he doesn't want to be attached to giving Don this information in any way. Um, and that was pretty much what Don thought he was going to do, but he could not help himself. And he told Dorothy, Mo- Dorothy, Dorothy Moxley that he had this information. Wow. And she of course told one person too. And that person told one person and da 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 da. That's how it goes. You got to keep mm-hmm. your fucking lips shut. Um, so is Michael's name suddenly floating around yes. the town? So Michael's name starts floating around at this point. Um, and then, Oh, Don also has like a weird connection to Rushton Skakel, the father that I just want to mention quickly. They actually attended Canterbury, a Catholic boarding school in New Milford, Connecticut together as boys. Rushton was like a few years ahead of him. And Dominic actually went to um, Robert Kennedy and Ethel Skakel's wedding in Greenwich, Connecticut and saw Rushton there. Like, yeah. So they have like these few weird connections, um, too, which aren't related to anything, but just weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously once news of this report got out, everyone wanted to fucking see it. Yeah. Um, so he did give a copy to the detective I mentioned earlier, Frank Gar, who was no longer at this point working for the Greenwich police department. And he was sort of on his own, but just interested, I guess. Um, 
and he Dominic actually said that he gave the report to Frank Gar, and Frank Gar never said anything to him about it. So who the <laughs> hell knows? Weird. It's weird. Uh, and then he received a fall phone call from Lucianne Goldberg, who you might remember as the literary agent who uh, helped Monica Lewinsky. Oh. <laughs> so she's basically the one who taped the phone calls about the blue dress with cum on it. Yes. Um, but she was a big time literary agent or she was, she was a literary agent who helped Linda Tripp. That's what who, I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Linda Tripp. Sorry, I'm confused. Because Linda Tripp was the one who tricked Linda Monica. Tripp tricked Monica and yeah. Lucianne, Linda Tripp went to Lucianne Goldberg yes. and she kind of set the whole thing in motion. Right. Um, so he gets this phone call from Lucianne Goldberg, uh, who he actually knew because he had covered the Klaus von Bülow murder trial or attempted murder trial for Vanity Fair. And she, I think had some connection to them. So they kind of knew each other in that weird social world of rich people. Uh, and she at the time uh, had become the literary agent for Mark Furman, who you might remember from the OJ Simpson um, murder trial. He was the bad asshole. He, he's the cop. asshole who said the N word like 150 million times right. in that one tape and basically fucked everything up. Uh, and he had written a book at that point on the case called murder in Brentwood uh, which is actually a pretty good book, even though he's a piece of shit. Um, and she said that she was looking for uh, an unsolved murder in which Furman could take his detective skills out on next. And uh, Dunn said to her, you should look into the Moxley case. I have some incredible information that I can give him. Wow. And that is where I'm going to end it this week. Because now we're going to go on to Mark Furman's involvement in this case. That's and crazy. What happens. I know. Isn't there so many crazy connections? There's so many Hollywood connections to this. I know. It's like it's, all over. Like every major trial is somewhat connected to this. It's wild. And, and it gets crazier. And I, I don't know anything about this case at oh, wow. all. I didn't. And I, I mean, I knew that this, this was a murder, but I didn't know anything. So this is all... Very, I'm on the edge of my seat. Right <laughs> really? Now. Oh, I good. totally am on the. I'm like, oh, it's so happened. good, right? Like, it's there's just really... so much like crazy twists and turns because you kind of hear the case. You're like, oh, a girl got murdered. It's the rich kid in the house. Right. But there's all this cover up and like these weird players who are just all coming together in this one right. crazy story. But yeah, so I'm excited for next week because it's mean, like juicy, juicy. It is juicy, juicy. <laughs> so tune in next week for the conclusion and more crazy twists and turns in the Martha Moxie And case. we'll actually be releasing it on the anniversary, so it's kind of creepy. Oh, we will be. That's <laughs> true. October so, 30th. Yeah, okay. Um, if you haven't yet, uh, uh, please visit our Patreon page uh, if you would like to here are bonus episodes. And I mentioned at the top of the show, just want to mention it again briefly. All um, our other social pages. All of our other social pages are at Holly, our Hollywood crime scene, except for our Twitter account, which is at Hwood crime scene. Um, but you can check us out on Instagram where we post pictures involving yeah. the case. Also, if you can rate and review us on iTunes, that's really helpful also. Yeah, it helps us when you give us five stars. Yeah, You don't even have to write a review. Just, yeah, give, just us give us five us some... stars if you like the show. Sure. Okay. So. Okay. Bye. All right, Thank bye. you.